0: Welcome to a special edition of the Air Force Doctrine podcast. My name is Nicholas Underwood. The LeMay Center in partnership with MGM Works is hosting an essay contest open to all civilian and uniformed airmen. Our essay prompt asks airmen to discuss how a specific U.S. Air Force doctrine will need to change or a new doctrine adopted due to the changing character of war expected over the next 10 years. As a kickoff event for the contest, this episode of the Air Force Doctrine podcast interviews Naval Postgraduate School Professor Emeritus Dr. John Arquilla on the changing character of war and its implications to Air Force Operational Doctrine. Dr. Arquilla is a Professor Emeritus of Defense Analysis at the Naval Postgraduate School and a former analyst at the RAND Corporation. He has served as an advisor to the Pentagon in numerous aspects, including as part of a team of analysts advising General Norman Schwarzkopf during the Gulf War. Dr. Aquila is also a top author in many fields of interest to our listeners, including security affairs, irregular warfare, military transformation, and the implications of the information age for society and security. Among his most noted work is his explorations of cyber war, net war, and swarming. His most recent book, Bits Creek, The New Challenge of Cyber War, focuses on how the ability to quickly gather, fuse, and distribute information is key to the current and future of armed conflict. Here's my conversation with Dr. Arquilla. Dr. Arquilla, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Really glad you could have you on today. Uh, as I've told as we've talked, we're going to have a an essay contest, and we're encouraging airmen of all ranks to analyze the character of war, look at Air Force doctrine, and try to utilize their experience to see how doctrine may have to change in the future or how we can better implement it in order to uh, to meet the challenges uh, that we see in the current security environment. Can you explain to us what we mean when we say character of war and, and how has this changed over time? Sure,
1: I, and by the way, I think that's a terrific question for your uh, essay prompt, uh, particularly given that the, the Air Force has done so much to change the character of war over the past century. Uh, Basically, the character of war changes, the way we fight, the way we operate, changes as technologies advance. And uh, the aircraft, of course, is a profound uh, instrument of of military affairs that uh, in its infancy, even in World War I, uh, played a very substantial role. Had the war gone from 1918 into 1919, uh, the battle plans uh, all featured heavy uses of aircraft in close support. Of advancing ground units and this was something that uh, the germans realized they at that point had little ability to uh, to deal with and played a big role in getting the armistice in november of 1918 uh, basically uh, new tools uh, generally uh, lead to new practices it doesn't happen right away uh, the world war one example is one of uh, a lot of new tools being used in old ways and so there was a lot of deadlock for years but the aircraft and the tank made a big difference late late in the war. And certainly a generation later in World War II, advances in technology, particularly the power of the internal combustion engine, uh, created a whole new character of operations that was based much more on maneuver than on positional uh, warfare. Uh, far more on being able to outflank rather than to just butt heads mass on on mass. Uh, I like to say there's uh, always been uh, four different forms of, of war that... Really form its character. Um, massing is, of course, one of the earliest forms. The phalanx, uh, and just a mass of Alexander's, you know, 16 foot long spear-driven infantry, able to plow through almost uh, anything. Uh, but then there was also maneuver that emerged. Uh, these would be the Parthian horsemen, uh, the Mongols, who were 100 percent mounted uh, army. Uh, and they too had a doctrine called uh, crow swarm, by the way, uh, which meant attacking an opponent from uh, all directions. And they had they used their mobility, their situational awareness, and the range of their bows, which outranged the Western uh, archers considerably. That allowed them to do this sort of thing. Uh, of course, when all that falls apart and uh, combat becomes very confused, you simply have a melee, where it's like a barroom fight, but on a large scale. So in different periods of technological change, different aspects of uh, this character, this four-part character of war manifest. Uh, In World War I, mass clearly mattered a great deal. In World War II, maneuver. Uh, I think in our era, we're we're moving much more toward a situation where uh, swarm tactics are going to be important. I think in the war in Ukraine, Uh, We've seen the Ukrainians uh, really persist and and triumph to a great extent over uh, Russian offensives because of their ability to hit them from all directions with small units uh, armed with smart munitions and swift flowing information. I think that's the three-part answer to what's happening to the character of war right now. And I I believe we're going to see that in all aspects of land, sea, air, and even aerospace warfare.
0: That's very interesting. So, we talk a lot here about uh, technology uh, allowing this flowing of information and maneuver. But uh, in bits Creek, you talk a lot about there's the technology race, but there's also this cognitive race. and I, th- I think that's the the practices uh, that you're talking about. Uh, just wanted to pull on that thread a little bit.
1: A- absolutely. A wonderful point. It's technology alone, uh, new tools. Without this cognitive edge will often lead to the persistence of old practices. Again, we go back to World War One with high explosive artillery and machine guns. Uh, all it did was reinforce uh, a lot of old thinking. And so the troops on the Western Front in 1915 were massed shoulder to shoulder in their attacks. Just as the infantry of Waterloo in 1815, so you have to be very careful at this cognitive level to realize that the new tools imply new practices, and to get to those new practices. And it seems to me, in in the case of uh, of air power, we've seen this from the very beginning. Uh, General Billy Mitchell suggesting, for example, that uh, ships at sea were going to be incredibly vulnerable in the future to air attack. And, of course, he ran up against an organization that wasn't, uh, let's say, at the cognitive edge and ended up being court-martialed. You know why? Because he used a bomb to sink the Ostfriesland that was uh, a bit bigger than the one that he was allowed to by the regulations of the exercise. And uh, he did some other things that uh, spoke spoke out quite a bit. Uh, speaking of which, uh, my comments reflect my views alone and do not represent <laughs> Department of Defense policy.
0: Yes, so, sir. yeah,
1: this cognitive story is an, is an important one, and, and I think it, it really is incumbent. And, and you know, I, I salute you for doing this podcast series, and I, and I hope this sort of thing is going on throughout the Department of Defense, because we have to cultivate
0: a turn of mind attuned to this age of technological change. Absolutely agree with that. And part of the cognitive pieces is, is not just we throw doctrine and things like organization into that as well. And uh, we'll add uh, how organization, uh, not just the doctrine applied, but how you're organized to do so. Uh, we've talked uh, separately about how air forces were organized uh, throughout World War II. We see the uh, what we could call penny packing uh, done by the French with their air force uh, uh, through the interwar period and uh, not were very successful uh, in World War II. And then you see the war, uh, air force, the U.S. Air Force moving away from that penny packing and getting to the decentralized execution. And so those pieces are what we really need our airmen to, to look at. How do we need to re-evolve our doctrine and organization?
1: Yeah, again, I, I think these are big aspects or manifestations of what it means to have uh, an appropriate turn of mind. What does your doctrine look like? How are you organized to conduct operations under this the changed conditions in the character of, of warfare? And uh, as you know, I, I've argued for a long time that given the advances in information technology, we have a fundamental shift in military affairs. Uh, that really can be summed up quite simply. The ages-old connection between range and accuracy has been decoupled. We now have all kinds of weaponry, particularly the Air Force, uh, that can fire at great distances with high levels of accuracy. So what this means is that smaller and mo- smaller fighting units have greater and greater disruptive and destructive power. And uh, so this in- this implies a-, a whole new concept of operations and, and requires a kind of doctrinal exploration of of the possibilities in terms of what this means for organizational structures. I, I think it means, uh, given the empowerment of small units because of the high accuracy of our systems, I, I think what it means is that we can have many more smaller units, what I call the many and the small, taking the place of the few and the large in military affairs. And, and I think that's the big organizational story. And as I say, I, I think this empowerment of the small groups allows us to swarm, to strike at many points uh, simultaneously or, or in sequence, uh, to to do so in a way that overloads the a- adversary defenses. I think this will prove superior. We don't need to have massed formations of bombers uh, going over the Ruhr, for example, in in World War II. We had to do that because of the lack of accuracy of the weapons. Even the Norden bomb site only got bombs within somewhere within a mile of the actual target if they were dropped from about bombs were dropped from 20,000 feet. Well, now you can be, you know, 100 miles away or more and put something right through the window of a building. So the the emphasis on uh, mass is probably beginning to lessen uh, the emphasis on empowering as much as possible as many small units as possible and activating them Uh, together to strike in many, many places, I I think this is a doctrinal uh, innovation that uh, we we see this in some Air Force campaigns. uh, uh, As you mentioned, the uh, American fighter bombers late in World War II were doing exactly this and entirely throwing uh, German combat units and logistics supports into confusion and making in the what was called the Feles uh, Gap, making a killing ground uh, of it. By the way, the Red Air Force was doing something similar at the end of World War II as well. So we, we've seen this, and my own involvements with the development of Air Land Battle uh, back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s uh, really tried to recapture that sense of being able to use this kind of uh, swarming capability against the various echelons of what would be thought to be, at the time, Red Army uh, advances from Central into uh, Western Europe. So there are antecedents for all this. I think right now the technology is absolutely in place to allow us to do this.
0: That's interesting. Uh, You you alluded to earlier uh, the many and the few uh, as I recall, you've you've put forth three new rules of war um, and, and you started to get into that. I, I, I would be interested to hear a little more.
1: Well, at an organizational level, uh, because of this empowerment of the small group, uh, we should be building militaries made up of a lot of little things rather than a few large things. So let's take the Navy, for example. Uh, why would we want to concentrate huge amounts of our combat power in just ten or eleven super aircraft carriers, that in an age of hypersonic missiles, uh, and supercavitation torpedoes, and brilliant seagoing mines, um, we're really creating uh, in various parts of the of the world single points of of failure. So I think th- it makes good sense to move from the few and the large to the many and and the small, and particularly because the small are so empowered by weapons accuracy. Uh, a, a second rule is is that. Uh, finding is the new flanking. You know, in maneuver warfare, you want to pin down the opponent, turn his flank, and uh, and then roll him up. Uh, today, the real challenge—and this is certainly a challenge for air power, uh, both in conventional as well as in irregular warfare—is finding enemy forces. If you look back to the Kosovo War, the biggest challenge against the forces of the uh, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, the Serbs was finding them. And uh, as we know, at an unclassified level from after action studies of the war, very, very little damage was actually done to Yugoslavian forces. We really needed to set our special forces loose with the Kosovars to help identify where the little packets of Serbs uh, were we're hiding to uh, make, a, make for a better campaign. So finding, and as we know from 20 years in Afghanistan, finding is a big problem. So that's a great challenge and, and air power, one of the biggest aspects of the future of air power is going to be the way in which it assists in the finding process, uh, whether with drones, with orbital or suborbital assets, but uh, creating the knowledge that becomes the fuel of future military operations is absolutely key. So that's the second new rule of war. Finding is the new flanking. And finally, at a doctrinal level, uh, swarming is the new surging. You know, we we tried to solve our problems in Iraq and Afghanistan by surging forces. Um, I think the real answer is not to bow to mass, which is uh, what surging really is. It's sending uh, more things in. Um, Swarming says, use what you have used those many small units to attack simultaneously. And in fact, when things turned around in 2007 in uh, Iraq, it was through, a, well, I had suggested at the time a system called outpost and outreach, create a lot of little outposts rather than a few big forward operating bases, where, which took a lot of time for troops to get off of, to go where they were going. And these little outposts generated more information, helped with the finding, but they also reacted swiftly. They worked very closely with air support. And before you knew it, uh, terrorist attacks dropped by over 90 percent during 2007. And this was uh, in the previous year. Uh, almost 40,000 innocent Iraqis had been killed by the insurgents. Uh, that was down by over 90 percent and stayed down really until uh, the end of 2011 when, uh, for reasons I still don't understand, we uh, we left uh, Iraq to uh, to ISIS and to to Iran. Uh, by the way, I'm still puzzled as to why we left Afghanistan, as, as you know from when we were we were together in class years ago. Uh, it's uh, it, I thought was a bad bad idea. So uh, this whole idea of of using that new organizational structure of many and small to the optimum engage most of them most of the time. That's the swarm, and that's going to matter a lot more than this notion of surging. Look, we we see it in in the victories of the Ukrainians in the opening campaign, in their war with the Russians, and to this day, lots of small units. Their basic unit of action was squad-sized. And uh, it's just uh, amazing when you activate all of them, when you give them a lot of autonomy within an overall concept of operations, the results can be uh, remarkable. I hope we do a little bit of talking about the issues of autonomy, control, Centralization and decentralization, because those are important
0: themes too, and that's actually where I want to go. A lot of um, it, it reminds, as you talk, it reminds me a lot of the work that uh, 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 Depoy did years ago, uh, charting dispersion over the years. The, the the distance between troops on the battlefield, uh, and and we see that happen. It happens. World War One, uh, they stayed fairly close together with disastrous results. World War Two, we start to see that dispersion open up, um, and one of the Things that enable this are these increased in uh, communication capabilities. Uh, As we look at uh, new concepts in the Air Force, such as agile combat employment, uh, how do we execute swarming? uh, There seems to be a a very uh, heavy command and control burden here. Um, How do we communicate? How do we coordinate all of these forces together? Any ideas on uh, how we can think about uh, command and control in in this new type of uh, paradigm?
1: What we have to realize is that command and control served an absolutely essential function uh, during the industrial age, right? Uh, before industrialization, armies were relatively uh, controllable from a single point during a single battle. Think of Napoleon at uh, Austerlitz or Borodino or even at, at uh, Waterloo, although Waterloo, things got a little more confusing for him. But uh, you basically can have the, the the great general observing everything. Well, with industrialization, the rise of rail armies became much larger, were distributed over more space. And so the idea of keeping some kind of control over what was going on was essential to coherent military operations and to effectiveness in, in battle. Uh, the, the question now is whether that same paradigm of control that worked for industrial-age militaries is still optimal for information-age militaries. Uh, And here, I I think the technology cuts in two directions. Uh, One is that because uh, connectivity is so ubiquitous, uh, there can be an impulse to over-control. On the other hand, there's the possibility of holding the reins very, very loosely – perhaps too loosely, and things get confused. So finding the equilibrium, and and I think you know the Air Force is, is working with uh, what do you what do you call it the idea of distributed control, uh, the idea that you're moving evolving away from classic command and control to something between that and absolute autonomy. And I think that's a very sensible uh, move to make, and I'd like to see the other services moving in in that direction. Uh, what we see in the business world, uh, is that uh, there is something really that that looks a lot like the the mission orders of uh, the elder Moltke in the uh, 19th century, the uh, Weisungen, uh, in which he gave great trust to his field commanders, uh, and and said, "Here's what we want to do. Uh, keep me informed. We've got this telegraph. Let me know what's going on, and I'll let you know if uh, you know how things are going and whether we may need to make any adjustments." And I think in the entire Franco-Prussian war, he only had to send something like six messages to different corps commanders. And it was a you know remarkable uh, a victory. So that's a good example. Moshe Dayan in 1967 in the Six-Day War, optional control uh, is what the Israelis called it, something quite similar. And they won a remarkable victory. Interestingly, though, in 1973, the Israelis fell back a little more on centralization and did less well, by the way. I think that's an almost laboratory-like uh, uh, case. So uh, and, and I saw some of this in, in the Gulf War with the, uh, the air tasking uh, orders, which was at the time it was all printed out. So it was a burst of paper that was about three and a half feet tall uh, twice a day coming out of the black uh, hole, uh, and, uh, which is where the air, air tasking orders were uh, put together. Uh, and then there were a number of assets that were simply let loose to seek targets of opportunity, and in close support, uh, they did just exemplary work. uh, And, uh, well, they created what um, Colin Powell called the highway of death uh, and uh, give a sense of how disruptive they were on on Iraqi forces. So I, I think, you know, clearly we have to move beyond classical command and control um, distributed control sounds like a you know really good midpoint, but there's probably more we can do to move in line with classic concepts like Moltke's Weisungen or Dayan's uh, optional control. Those are great historical examples of how uh, command and decontrol, if you will, will work. And in the business world, they're just they're doing a lot of that uh, right now. And uh, what what the CEOs want is topside on what's going on. Uh, but they give a lot of confidence and trust in their subordinates, and simply say, "Look, if I think something needs adjusting, I'll let you know." Uh, it's very interesting at places like IBM and and other uh, uh, very advanced uh, uh, and uh, internationally uh, interlinked companies, how light the hand of senior management is, of command is on business operations, and and I think you know the. The way you make your money is the way you make your war. So I I think there will be some similarities between
0: commerce and uh, military affairs in in the years ahead. Absolutely. As you you talk about that, uh, one of the recent uh, words we've added to the Air Force lexicon is is has been around a while, but uh, uh, mission command Uh, here Mm -hmm. at the LeMay Center. We're really pulling apart uh, mission command and looking at through the airman's perspective. And a lot of that is the is based on the tenets that we've been pursuing since 1943, this idea of decentralized execution. Mm-hmm. And so, as you mentioned Mulkey there, that uh, really popped in my head. I was like, I, yeah, we're, we're building a lot. And I would encourage any of our, our reader uh, listeners uh, to study the German general staff, uh, especially in regards to the uh, the Mission Command concepts, uh, because there's a lot that uh, we can learn uh, looking at that. But as we, we've we talked about Mission Command, one thing that um, uh, Creek really tunes me into is this additional need at the lower levels to uh, communicate and coordinate. Uh, We saw that uh, we recently did a podcast uh, uh, discussing the uh, the pullout of Afghanistan, the Kabul airlift. And it was amazing to me to hear about the coordination that was happening at the tactical level via cell phones or any means necessary. Um, your, Your net war uh, concept talks a lot about that particular communication and how new technology has enabled that. Uh, how How much of a uh, these these nodes of communication, these all channel networks, as you call them, how much of a a, a major factor do you think this is going to play in the future?
1: Oh, I think it's going to be essential to military success in in the future and, and a cause of failure if you can't get there. Uh, you basically, uh, first of all, have to have a lot of trust in in your operators. Uh, they have to be you know, fully conversant with the concept of operations, the goals of the particular campaign, what are we doing uh, in this conflict, uh, et cetera. And you know, the United States invests a tremendous amount in its human capital. We have non-commissioned officers doing things routinely that in militaries and other countries take colonels to do. Uh, so let's have some faith in, in our people. Uh, but I think you raise another very important point, and that's really about network design. Militaries traditionally have been very hierarchical, and it's one of the reasons that there, when there have been snafus, that, that like getting out of uh, Kabul uh, in in 2021, uh, I'd say a lot of that has to do with vertical flows of information. In an information age, you want those flows to be lateral in in nature, and and so how do you design to do that? Uh, well, I I think the the simplest way. Uh, to do it would be to uh, pursue this idea of distributed uh, uh, control. Uh, And that is within these areas of distribution, there has to be lateral connection between all the units of action in that that area. You don't want to have an all-channel network where everybody connects with everybody everywhere in a field of operations. But this idea of distributed uh, uh, control... Suggest that you can have little areas of all-channel connectivity, which are then linked. Perhaps they become uh, you. You have a hub and spokes design. Uh, a, a lot of what I see in militaries today looks like hub and spokes, where there's a center and then lots of spokes radiating out from it, doing things. Well, think about having at the end of one of those spokes an area that that spoke is actually an area where 10, 12, 20 uh, units of action are all connected with each other, sharing information, accessing it uh, quickly, and uh, knowing what's what's going on. That will allow them to optimize their own uh, operations and to do so very swiftly. When we first went into Afghanistan in, uh, uh, 2000, in the fall of 2001, there were just 11 A-teams there, less than 200 of our operators on the ground, but they were all connected on the tactical web page and by the way i think you uh, remember colonel greenshields well he was you know heading the special operations aviation at, at that time and they were connected to him as as well and so this information this was war by seconds and minutes and that makes a very very big uh, difference so uh, network design is something that i think will fit very well with the uh, uh, the concept of distributed control and uh, I, I think, among other things, it can greatly enhance the effectiveness of air campaigns. But those air campaigns, and most of the time, exist to support some sort of land operations. And so we, we have to think in terms of how this integrates with the overall uh, war plan. And, and there, and I hope we get to this a little bit, we really have to ask ourselves, are we conducting a campaign designed to wear down an opponent, or are we conducting a campaign to get to a specific place? So think about Iraq in the 2003 invasion. That was a sequential campaign. Thunder run to Baghdad, overthrow Saddam Hussein. But what followed after that was a wearing down attritional campaign where it's the cumulative effects of uh, what we do. We're going to decide how things turned out. And thankfully, by 2007, we'd figured out how to wear down al-Qaeda in Iraq and drop their capabilities substantially. So when we think about that, Um, and we think about this notion of um, all channel nodes within pods of distributed control, we have to ask ourselves, is this part of a campaign with a sequential goal, some place we're going to be, or is it something we're trying to do over time? Think of what the Russians tried to do in Ukraine. They tried a sequential campaign, a rush at Baghdad, but they got swarmed by the Ukrainians and stopped there. Now they're engaged in a campaign, basically a strategic air campaign, right, with drones and missiles, to try to wear down the the will of the Ukrainians, destroy their infrastructure, and the ground fighting looks very attritional as 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 well. So you know, if the Ukraine, whoever's going to uh, win this is going to have to figure out how to optimize the use. And it looks to me like actually uh, air capabilities are going to make a very very big difference. You have to ask yourself why hasn't Russian close air support worked better? And part of that, if I may digress for a moment, part of that is really a story about the accuracy of weaponry, right? Through, throughout most of history, when you hurled a weapon at your opponent, you were hurling a certain amount of mass with all the energy you could. And that you know translated same thing to our the days of artillery that began about 700 years ago. Well, Today, you don't just hurl mass and energy, you now hurl mass energy and information. And that's, I think, going to be a key, key difference here. And uh, I know the Ukrainian, and this is true for the Ukrainian ground forces, as well as their air defense forces. uh, The intelligence of the anti-air weapons that the Ukrainians have in their hands, thanks to us and, and other allies, has made it very hard for the Russians to use air power that's so essential to their own Blitzkrieg doctrine, right? And it seems to me that this is the crux of the campaign. If if the Russians can't figure out how to do effective combined arms uh, operations, uh, even under General Garasimov, who's just taken over in, in theater now, uh, they're going to fail again. And conversely, uh, the sheer amount of smart weaponry increasingly in the hands from high Mars to attack drones to all the ISR the Ukrainians are getting, their many and small units are absolutely going to be able to swarm the Russians out of the areas they've taken. Uh, and, and it seems to me, uh, you know, stand by. Uh, it's going to get very, very interesting. and And the key, the crux, of course, is this whole notion of the information content of weaponry, which from which all these other implications we've been talking about flows,
0: that's phenomenal. As as we think through that, um, how how much of a change uh, do the change in the this character of war? How is this affecting um, how we integrate with other campaign plans?
1: Well, it's going to be interesting. In, in case we do get into a, a major war with a technologically advanced opponent one of the critical questions uh, for uh, joint operations is going to be the extent to which we are able to provide uh, close air support. You know, let's just uh, give an example here from Vietnam. Uh, The whole idea of air mobility, I know the helicopters were Army and Marine helicopters, but that was the use of air mobility. In my day, it was called vertical envelopment when I was an enlisted man. Uh, And the whole idea there was that this technology was going to create a tactical mobility the enemy couldn't cope with. Uh, But guess what? You know, the enemy had good air defenses and shot down 4,000 helicopters in Vietnam and had good air defenses, by the way, against strategic bombing in the north. So there is an example of a a situation where in a a kind of joint uh, campaign uh, mindset, we were unable to do the things that we had theorized about doing precisely because of the enemy's capabilities in air defense. And what we're seeing in the Russo-Ukraine War, which I think is a lot like uh, serves the function of the Spanish Civil War before World War II, right? Tanks and planes were all pioneered in the Spanish Civil War. Well, in the Russo-Ukrainian War, we're seeing a lot of pioneering in in terms of uh, swarms, but also air defenses. And I'm uh, a little concerned about our ability to uh, work at a tactical uh, uh, level with uh, close air support- maybe even battlefield interdiction of enemy forces. So that's going to be a very, very interesting uh, challenge. And it, it raises the question about whether we need to think about the use of air power- in such settings through the lens of platforms or through the lens of weapons. Maybe if air defenses are so good, sort of what are they calling them uh, in the uh, naval air uh, context, the uh, anti-area, you know, air denial, uh, area denial. Uh, If that's the case, maybe we need to become more weapon-centric than platform-centric and be, as the Russians, by the way, are doing with their aircraft now, right? They're shooting missiles from aircraft that are well inside the Russian border. Because they're afraid to go over Ukrainian airspace, so maybe a very different kind of uh, close support. Maybe not. Maybe we'll call it not so close support in in the future. So it, it seems to me that that's one of the big implications for joint operations. Uh, the other is if we achieve and sustain air mastery of one sort or another, where su- whether superiority or supremacy in a theater the ability of ground forces to operate in very small numbers becomes greatly increased. So I see that as another key aspect in the relationship in joint operations, uh, where air power becomes the fulcrum of the land operations. And uh, and that, I think, is is going to be uh, absolutely uh, uh, crucial as we move ahead. And it raises, and I know we haven't talked about this yet, but it raises the question about how to gain that superiority. We think a lot in terms of suppression of enemy air defenses, uh, and and that's a a good thing, but of course, becoming more and more difficult in an age of very smart weapons. What happens when the enemy air defenses include a lot of autonomous air vehicles whose job is simply to kamikaze into our aircraft? Uh, The use of AI is something that I think is going to have profound implications for air power in the 21st century in terms of the character of air warfare uh, in particular, I, I think in land warfare, we're going to see less impact of autonomous uh, fighting uh, vehicles or systems. But in uh, air warfare, I think uh, AI is going to be very powerful. I don't know if how closely the Air Force has studied the, uh, the Deep Mind experiment. This is an AI that went up against the top gun fighter pilots uh, three years ago- they did five dogfights and the AI, uh, using the same simulator of the same aircraft, um, and the AI shot down the top gun five times and never sustained a hit of its own. Well, take that to the next step, which is if, if you have just AI aircraft, you can design them well beyond the tolerances of the human body. And places like China and Russia don't care about the ethics of air warfare Uh, that somehow AIs might go rogue and do something, uh, you know, really, really bad. Um, They don't mind making these things full autonomous. We're going to be always very careful about that. So one of the things I suggested in my book, and thanks for mentioning it, uh, is that just just like moving from command and control to distributed control is a way station, we should do the same thing with AI and begin to build squadrons that have a mix of human pilots, drone pilots, and AIs, with in that little pod the you know the squadron commander having the ability in case the AI goes haywire of you know detonating uh, that, that that plane have have some kind of fail safes in those in those settings but I think it's time to begin blending in artificial intelligence. We're moving into 21st century will be an age of uh, war increasingly populated by intelligent machines and and it seems to me that, that too is going
0: to have a fundamental impact on the character of warfare. That's interesting, and one of the things you you speak a lot about it is is technology strategy, uh, and we started step, stumbling into that a little bit there. Uh, you talked about weapon centric versus platform centric, um, and you even mentioned uh, drones as as kamikazing into other aircraft, and and the it seems the character of air warfare in general. Uh, is changing what the air fight will actually look like. Uh, I think is your, your your big point there. We may not have sixth, seventh generation fighters going against each other in the traditional sense. We may have an entirely different character playing out. And so, if that that's the case, um, this concept of uh, or this idea of technology strategy needs to look entirely different uh, as we go forward. Uh, did you want to pull on that a little bit?
1: Absolutely, it's an excellent point. And and for your listeners, I just want to say that Major Underwood wrote a a brilliant thesis for me on the issue of of technology strategy, and uh, everyone should uh, tug on on that and have a, have a look at it. Uh, yeah, what what kind of uh, Air Force, what kind of military do we want to build? Well, I think if if one of the new rules of war is uh, many and small beats few and large, maybe what you want to do is take some of your funding and set that aside to build a lot of little things. Uh, right now, uh, our military across the services is uh, heavily invested- in uh, relatively uh, small, you know, super aircraft carriers. Uh, what's, the, what's the cost of the F-35, for example? Uh, and and how, how would relatively small numbers of, of those expensive platforms- do against swarms of uh, enemy AIs just seeking to kamikaze them? Uh, It's, uh, I I think, something that we want to be able to uh, use our own swarms to counter what will undoubtedly be uh, AI swarms coming from uh, forces from either China or uh, Russia. Frankly, the uh, Iranians uh, do a series of naval exercises uh, called Great Profit. They have some from the Shah's days. They have some larger old vessels left and they use those to portray the American Navy. And in each of these great profit exercises, uh, they swarm them with these uh, kamikazes and uh, and score countless hits on them and and uh, and basically sink the uh, the proxy American fleet in in every one of these uh, exercises. By the way, the Iranians' term for it is ezba, which uh, in their language in Farsi it means saturation, but it sounds like a swarm of bees. So look, when when we need a technology strategy, we first realize that. Everything comes at opportunity cost. If you're doing one thing, you may not be able to do something else. And uh, that's why I I suggest that we have to put our our strategic uh, caps on right away. Long before we even start thinking about operational plans and this or that theater of operations, we have to think in terms of the character of warfare and what it implies for the kind of force in which we should invest. Uh, As you know, uh, I spent a lot of time doing research on why the Germans built a fleet that looked uh, before World War I that looked just like the Royal Navy and only built a couple of submarines when at a time the, the submarine was undetectable when submerged uh, and almost won the war, even with just a handful of submarines they had. Why, why was the technology strategy, which was pursued by the Germans for 20 years before the shooting started, why did they choose the few and the large instead of a lot of small submarines? So, and, and you can go on and on. Uh, you've written beautifully about the French choice to uh, build the kind of aircraft they did that were almost utterly unsuited for the kind of the character of war that emerged in uh, 1939 and 1940. So, uh, yeah, what's our technology strategy? When, when is that discussed and where is it discussed? I think in the Department of Defense, uh, there's not a single place that's designated that by name. There's a lot of uh, testing and research and development, but who are the technology strategists? Who? Who besides you? Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's uh, thanks for bringing it up. It's a crucial issue, and and I think it touches on on something else that that you and I have discussed in in the past and and more recently. To be a good technology strategist. You have to have an understanding of what is the state of things, the unchanging state of things? What are the constants? What are the emerging trends? And what are the possible shocks that could come at us? And uh, I don't know if you want to chat about that, if we have time to do that, but I'd, I'd love to say a few words about that, too.
0: Yep, I, I definitely want to get to that. I'll, I'll add one of my own points um... Uh, if if a major is allowed to, uh, to do so, uh, is that uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, a, a bit of a controversial character, but uh, he's, he's famous as saying, you go to war with the military you have, not the military you want. And I think uh, for our listeners, when we think about technology strategy, uh, you have to think even further behind than that. You have to think about, I'm going to war with the military I decided to have 20 years ago. Um, and that's why, uh, as we look in technology strategy, Uh, It's generally a much longer process, and you have to be thinking far, far ahead.
1: Yeah, a very wise man who uh, worked for uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt on a defense committee before World War II uh, said to the committee members in the proceedings of one of the meetings, he said, "Uh, gentlemen, and at the time they were all men, gentlemen, wars begin 10 years before the shooting starts. And he said that back in 1936. And uh, of course, we had only five years between then and Pearl Harbor. So we were, uh, it, didn't, it didn't have our full uh, decade. We probably would have had a lot more carriers if uh, the war hadn't happened until 1946. War begins 10
0: years before the shooting starts. And, and I think that's why technology strategy is so important. So to get to the point that you were talking about, uh, in terms of of looking f- uh, how to analyze this character of war and h- how to apply this, uh, you know, for somebody sitting down going, okay, I want to compete in this contest, and I think uh, I, I, I'm knowledgeable in this particular doctrine. How do I look at that uh, that character of war? What what's kind of a framework to to help me understand uh, how these changes will affect? the way I operate or the way my organization operates. So you started by saying something about constant trends and shocks.
1: Yeah, certainly uh, the technology strategist. But I think for strategists overall, a good question to ask is what is unchanging in the character of war? What what stays the same from where we've been to where we are to where we may be going? Um, What are emerging trends? What are we beginning to see out there? Uh, and what might absolutely uh, shock us, and and shocks can come in two ways. One can be an absolute bolt from the blue that you didn't expect, uh, and the other uh, shock can be simply a dam bursting effect of just there's been pressure building up for years, and finally the dam bursts, and the effects are are catastrophic. So uh, to give examples of of, of shocks, certainly. Uh, Pearl Harbor was a, a shock in terms of even though Billy Mitchell had said surface ships are vulnerable to air attack, and we had some aircraft carriers of our own, although we had three times as many battleships as carriers in 1941, uh, it was the shock that said, okay, the aircraft carrier is now the capital ship in naval warfare. Uh, that was a you know huge, huge shock out of out of the blue. Um, a dam bursting shock, I'd say, comes after World War II, when all the various colonial powers, from the British Empire to the French to any, anyone who had influence over others' territories and other peoples, uh, had to come up against this notion of insurgency. And it basically destroyed colonial control around the world in a period of of, of decades. And, and of course, uh, the United States becomes embroiled in, in Vietnam, which started as an anti-colonial war, and and uh, even we couldn't stop that. the The dam had burst, and the power of the people was to be recognized. and the, the only really technological element in all of that was the AK-47, a weapon that just worked really, really well and powered individuals in all kinds of settings uh, everywhere. Uh, what are What are trends that are that are out there? Well, in our time, you know the The biggest trend has been the the increasing information content of weaponry, uh, right to the point where sometimes a weapon can be entirely uh, autonomous, not just remotely uh, uh, controlled. So that's a that's a trend. Whether will that lead to a shock? I I think the potential would be uh, in a major war with an advanced power to see our manned aircraft all attacked by autonomous swarms. Uh, That would be that's the latter day Pearl Harbor. Uh, and and it, it seems to me that would be a tremendous shock. Uh, what about Constance? When I look at the American military, I, I see, you know, of that nearly 900 billion defense budget, a great deal of it is allocated to what I would refer to as the Constance, you know, the, the aircraft carriers, the advanced uh, fighter aircraft the um, you know basically all the, the the suite of of tools in uh, in in the land forces the marines the amphibious assault ships et, et, et cetera the whole paradigm is based on the idea that a great deal of what has been will continue to be and uh, it seems to me that good technology strategy should demand of us to to think about. How the existing trends may lead to some kind of of shock. Will there, you know, will there come a dam bursting moment where we know AI is on the rise? Will it will it have as profound an effect in the 21st century as the aircraft itself did in the 20th century? Uh, that it seems to me is is essential for those who are writing their their essays on the changing character of war and what it implies, particularly for the for the Air Force. I I think this point about AI is. Is probably something that speaks to the issue of uh, a, a really um, fast-moving trend that that may lead to uh, to a shock in in, in the future. Uh, in in any event, there there are some constants even in air power. Right? You know, the B-52 is the world's greatest constant, right? It's, uh, if if you think in terms of being weapon-centric rather than platform-centric, maybe you don't need to get rid of older aircraft. Maybe you don't need the most advanced aircraft. If the answer is very very smart weapons or or even small drone swarms that can be unleashed from uh from aircraft. uh these are you know cutting edge concepts that i i think the trend line shows that uh, capability is is not too far off from this initial design period i i know at the naval postgraduate school we've experimented with uh, swarms of uh, 50 on 50 fighting each an attacking swarm of 50 being intercepted by uh, by a counter swarm Uh, and uh, for those who who don't know our our school has controlled airspace at uh, fort hunter liggett and uh, a couple hours away from uh, monterey and which by the way is not totally submerged right now i know people are going to be hearing this at different times but uh, we're recording this in the middle of a series of bomb cyclones we're getting swarmed by cyclones uh, these past few weeks
0: and and today but thankfully the power has stayed on so i'm grateful for that (laughs) That's good to hear. Um, As you talk about constants, uh, one of the things uh, doctrinally that I always worry about, uh, we're very clear that uh, uh, doctrine is not dogma. Uh, But very often throughout history, we have seen that uh, an assumed constant can produce a uh, a self-induced shock. Uh, The one that pops in my mind is the bomber will always get through. Is there some additional examples that uh, you think through of of poorly assumed constants uh, may be present now that we should really be uh, watching out for? Well,
1: I I think your example of the bomber will always get through is a beautiful one. And it led to the doctrine of uh, close formation daylight bombing, right? And the design of the Flying Fortress, the whole notion that mass still mattered. That was the constant, right? Going into World War II. Uh, And uh, pretty soon we realized that Uh, small fighter swift fighter aircraft were going to uh, inflict unacceptable losses on mass daylight uh, bombers and of course why why did they come up with this idea well yes the notion of uh, the bomber will always get through but what was driving it was the larger strategic goal of bombing with accuracy Uh, the british gave up on this uh, because they they didn't even have flying fortresses or a concept Uh, and their early daylight bombing raids were absolutely decimated. So they just went to area bombing at at night, which was tremendously destructive, but usually not of war-making capacity. Uh, So the the Americans wanted to bomb in daylight for greater accuracy and came up with a doctrine that, well, mass is a constant in warfare, so we're going to mass these guys together in in bomber formations. And they did so against uh, horrific uh, losses, um, and then uh, realized that well, the best way, and what was happening, they were actually getting swarmed by Luftwaffe fighter squadrons. So they created a counter swarm in fighter escorts, in particular, uh, the uh, long-range P-51 with the with the drop tanks that allowed bombers to be escorted to and from targets. And by being able to create a counter swarm, they were able to deal with the uh, with with the problem. Uh, so there's a a, a case where uh, you know something emergent helped to support something that was an assumed constant, Uh, and by the end of the war, of course, these mass formations were just uh, bombing Germany into uh, rubble. Now, I I, I think what Stanley Baldwin said back in 1932 about the the bomber always getting through is, uh, you know, clearly in an age of very, very smart weaponry in the air and in terms of uh, air defenses based on the ground, uh, it's going to be a, a, a lot harder. and so the the trend line is clearly away from massed formations to more distributed formations. And the trend may even be to as the Russians are suggesting to uh, launch uh, smart weapons, air launch cruise missiles and and other weapons from a distance. and that may be the uh, the, the new norm uh, because I think if if we assume uh, constants in in air power, uh, about the ability to penetrate, uh, we're probably going to f- end up in a, in a high-casualty uh, shock, much as happened to the, the B-17s in their early campaigns
0: in, uh, in World War II. So we've covered a number of interesting points from your book, Bitzkrieg. Uh, were there any other revelations uh, that you wanted to cover from your your work in Bitzkrieg or uh, from any of your other writings?
1: Uh, well, uh, thank you, first of all, for mentioning uh, Bitzkrieg, uh, and, and I hope our readers will find some, some value in it. Uh, but let me also suggest, we've, we've mentioned World War II, the period leading up to it, the uh, issues of technology strategy. A couple of years ago, I wrote another book called Why the Axis Lost, uh, and uh, the, the basic argument is that they were pretty poor technology strategists. And uh, that's, that's what hurt them the most. They didn't lose simply because they were up against greater numbers. They, their early conquests gave them a kind of material parity with their, with their opponents. But, um, for example, let's just think of the, the Japanese Zero fighter plane in, in 1941. That was the best fighter plane in, in the world. Um, but it came at some design uh, choices that... Created vulnerabilities. It had the greatest range, swiftest maneuverability, but to do that, it was only lightly armored. In fact, did not have self-sealing fuel tanks, uh, and was uh, had a tendency to blow up. American aircraft were slower, less maneuverable, but could take a lot more battle damage, and utterly defeated the Zero. And that's really why the Pacific War, um, you know, changes so radically, so so swiftly. Uh, it really was the uh, the the air e- equation. So there's still a lot to learn from um, the de- design approach of militaries in in World War II. And we haven't talked much about design yet, but I, I think that's uh, really, really important to think like a designer. A designer is a problem solver. How do we get through air defenses, et cetera? what What is the problem we face in the field? And how do we design a way around it? And design is not only with technology, it's also with organization. Maybe, you know, we deal with the challenges we face by creating a lot of smaller units of action, or maybe the answer is in doctrine. Uh, maybe not simply mass or flanking attacks, but maybe swarm attacks are out there. Uh, look, I'm extremely grateful for having the opportunity to share some thoughts on this podcast. And I just want to uh, close my own comments, If uh, I assume we're getting near the end here or uh, over an hour by uh, coming back to the issue of shocks. And I hope the essay writers will think and come up with a shock we haven't thought of. How about that? What is what is something that could hit us by absolute surprise or what is out there that's building up pressure and is gonna burst the dam in, in the near future? I, I hope in some of these essays, we, we we learn of some fresh concerns that to
0: which we can focus our attention and, and hopefully uh, prevent. Well, Dr. Aquila, really appreciate having you here today. Uh, this has been tremendous. Uh, hopefully, provide our listeners a great deal of information whether they choose to to write in this contest or not. But I'll uh, uh, here in conclusion, I'll I'll throw the the mic back over to you. And if there's anything uh, any final thoughts you have,
1: I, I guess uh, something that I always try to tell myself is approach whatever problem you're looking at with a sense of humility and. Uh, That takes me back to something that uh, the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, said 80 years ago in the early days of World War II when America had just been shocked at at Pearl Harbor. Uh, He gave a public speech in which he said, quote, modern warfare is an intricate business about which no one knows everything and few know very much, close quote. I think as we try to look at the future, uh, we look through a glass darkly. And uh, so we have to, to realize we, we may catch glimpses of what's coming. And our job is to, to try to see as much as we can, to be careful about making big bets about what we think we see, and hedging against possibilities and alternatives. I, I think as we, as we look at the future of military affairs, um, this idea of there are times when you want to make a big bet on something – uh, like uh, Admiral Tirpitz made a big bet on battleships before, German battleships before World War I, wrong bet. Uh, or hedging, being able to play in a number of different ways, from conventional to irregular warfare, from sequential type campaigns to attritional cumulative campaigns, uh, being broadly prepared uh, versus you know, placing all your chips on, uh, on red, let's say. Uh, so uh, I, I leave you with that thought from Secretary Knox, and, and my hope that uh, together we may all create a kind of uh, collective intelligence that puts together a mosaic that gives us, a, in the end, a very good sense of what's coming in the future. And again, thank you so very much for involving me in this podcast.
0: That's going to do it for our special edition of the Deciphering Doctrine podcast. Special thanks to MGM Works and AUIX for sponsoring our essay contest. Contest details can be found at mgmworks.org. That's H-T-T-P-S colon forward slash, forward slash dot O-R-G. We look forward to reading your essays. And as a final note, the views reflected on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the LeMay Center, MGM Works, Air University or the Department of Defense. I'm Nicholas Hundwood. We will see you next time.